Welcome to the second season of Can I Get a Retake, the podcast where education gets innovative. I'm Michelle. And I'm Michaela. Join us each month as we dive into the trends and technologies shaping the future of higher education. Stay curious, stay inspired, and come learn with us from today's educator. Today's episode is a one-of-a-kind mashup of economics, history, sports, race and gender studies, and pop culture. We are joined by the distinguished Dr. David Barry, a man of many talents, sports economist, and professor of economics at Southern Utah University. Dr. Barry's work has graced the pages of prestigious journals like the International Journal of Sports Finance and prominent publications including The Atlantic, Time, and Forbes. But most importantly, and we might be biased, he's the author of The Last Hero's Lesson and Other Stories from the Road to an Inclusive America published here at Great River Learning. In his work, Dr. Barry makes economic concepts digestible by linking them to the beloved and familiar stories of our time. Picture this, using the force to unravel the complexities of Keynesian economics, or exploring how Thanos' decision at the end of Infinity War was a misguided attempt to address the Malthusian trap. Through his rich storytelling, Dr. Barry turns the dismal science into an enjoyable subject for a new generation of college students. Well, first of all, thank you for coming to the pod, Dr. Barry. We'd like to start at the beginning because it's a very good place to start. That's our own kind of cultural callback. Um, Can you tell us about your personal journey from academia to author to podcast interviewee? My uh, journey is a little different, I gather, than most academics. Um, most academics uh, tend to come from educational, educated backgrounds. Uh, I think there was a study showing that a significantly large number of professors have parents with PhDs. And a PhD is a very rare thing to have in society. So that's odd. Um, my parents did not go to college. Uh, they did not complete a degree. Uh, they never really, they, they passed away many years ago, but they never really understood what it is I do exactly. Um, uh, one of the things my mother would say to me uh, after I got my PhD is she would often say this to me. She would say, uh, so your PhD, uh, and she'd always pause your PhD is in economics, right? Economics. I said, yes. And then she'd always say, and what is that? What I was talking to your aunt about this. And I, what was that again? What do you, what do you study? I don't know, mom stuff, things. I don't know. (laughs) They never knew what it is I did or why they had no idea. My last dad, last job my father had was, um, was he's a taxi cab driver. Um, so he was not interested in these kind of things. So I, I, Finished my undergraduate degree. Uh, I was initially a music minor, um, and that's what I was going to study. That is hard. Music is very, very difficult and requires a lot of commitment, and I never had that much commitment. Uh, It's also extraordinarily competitive. 
Um, mm-hmm. And so I quickly realized that even though I love music, that was simply not going to work. I did not have that level of work ethic that I was going to do that. <laughs> uh, so I, I, I had a, a major um, I was not that interested in economics as a, as a degree. I, it was something I was doing because I wanted to do music and I needed I thought I should have a degree that sounded like more real. Um, and so I did economics. And then when I finished my undergraduate career and I was like, I don't know what to do with my life. I can't do music, obviously. I do remember looking at one ads saying, I don't want to do that. That doesn't sound like fun. I don't want a job. Uh, what can I do? So I said, I'll go to graduate school. Um, so I went to graduate school um, and um, I, I, I got into graduate school. Uh, I was still not very interested, uh, in economics, but it was, I was, it was better than having an actual job, I thought. Uh, and then as I was getting, uh, I was working towards a PhD, I said, I, I should at least get a master's out of this in case the PhD doesn't work. And I, I remember, uh, asking, well, how do you get a master's? What would be the process? Economics is a little different than other fields. We don't, the master's is usually folded into the PhD in some way. It's not like, something that you actually get first and then do the PhD. It's it's sort of just part of the process. And at Colorado State, where I went and got my PhD, they had three avenues to get a uh, master's. They said, you can do original research. I was like, I don't think I can do that. Uh, you can take a <laughs> test. I don't think I can pass the test. And then they said, you could write a literature review of some sort, but you'd have to take another class if you did that. I said, that sounds, I can do that. And then I, I, the literature review I, I did, I, I found a quote in a book that said that you can measure the economic value of a baseball player, which I did not know you could do. And I said, when I found out you could do sports with economics, then I became interested. Then I was like, oh, well, that sounds like fun. Um, so I started doing sports research, and uh, that was not something economists typically did. Uh, it was not considered something that would – it would not get you tenure at Harvard, that's for sure. But I wasn't looking to go to Harvard, so I was okay with that. Uh, and so I started doing sports research, um, and I started writing papers, starting writing papers with people I knew. Uh, and we didn't know a lot about writing or publishing or research. We just started doing it, and people started publishing our work. Uh, and th- as they published it, I kept writing it. Uh, and so now, now we're you know, 25, 30 years into this. I've written about... Close to 90 academic articles on sports. I don't know that there's very many people on the planet who've written that many uh, in this particular field. Uh, I've written a textbook in sports. Uh, I've written uh, trade books in sports. Uh, I've I've written about sports for a wide variety of non-academic outlets, including the New York Times and Forbes and the Atlantic and Huffington Post and Time and a bunch of different places. Uh, And I've been interviewed by lots and lots of people. I I get called on by the media probably a couple of times a month to comment on some particular sports issue. Uh, I now have started teaching a course in in Bangkok on sports economics, which is really fun. Uh, That's a live Zoom class. Uh, with students in Thailand. Um, they are taking it at eight o'clock in the morning. I am teaching it at seven o'clock at night. It's fun. Um, I, I find it fun. Of course, they're young. Mm-hmm. So their attitude is that this is not really so cool because they grew up with the technology. Um, if you're older, you're like, really, this is like the Jetsons. This is amazing. Um, <laughs> so so uh, so that's that's, you know, that's sort of where my research 
came about. Uh, my teaching, um, I started a, at a small liberal arts college. Uh, also, when I was a college, actually, I started teaching at Colorado State. Uh, I, I, I decided to make myself as employable as possible. It'd be good if I switched classes and taught as many subjects as possible. By the time I finished at Colorado State, I already taught uh, six to eight different subjects in economics. And then I went to work at a very small liberal arts school in Iowa. Uh, and I worked there for about three years, and there I taught many, many more classes. Uh, that's where I first started teaching economic history. Uh, when I interviewed for that job, they asked me, can you teach economic history? And I said, yes. They did not ask the obvious follow-up question, do you know anything about economic history? The answer to that would have been no. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but I can do whatever you ask me to do. Uh, and so I started teaching economic history at this small liberal arts college. And then I went uh, to California. I worked in California at Cal State Bakersfield for about six years, also taught economic history there. That was always an upper division course to econ majors. And then I, I came to Utah primarily because this campus is located in the mountains. Uh, and when I came here uh, in 2008, they said, we would like you to teach economic history, but this is unusual. Utah has a class for uh, general education class. First year students, you will not be teaching econ majors or history majors. You'll be teaching every other major on campus as first year students. Um, so can you do that? And they and they prefaced before they asked me that we did have a professor who retired the person you're replacing. Uh, he could not. He offered the class. Nobody would sign up for it. He taught it as an actual economic history class. And it was so immensely boring that even though it filled a genetic requirement and it's one of only two or three classes that fill this particular genetic requirement in the state of Utah, nobody would sign up for his class. It was just awful. Um, and I said, I could give that a shot. And they said, you know, so the idea was you got to make it so that it's interesting. This has to be interesting. You have to tell stories in economic and history without doing math, without <laughs> drawing graphs on a board, uh, without boring the students. Can you do that? And okay, let's see if we can do that. And so uh, I started teaching this class and I developed an approach where I would incorporate uh, movies and television shows and comedy bits and uh, eventually music. And I would tell the stories in an amusing way as possible. Because uh, history is, there's a lot of comedy in history. There's a lot of stuff in history that in retrospect is hilarious. Um, people don't think, I'm sure people at time did not think it was hilarious, uh, but a lot of it is really, really quite funny. At least you can tell it in a way um, that is funny. In your course, you discuss some interesting chapters in U.S. history, English history, medieval history. Is there a particular story from the medieval period that students respond to or that resonates with them? Uh, so one of the stories I tell in the book is that we have to understand how uh, how the United States developed. And the key to economic development in the United States is, uh, and this is this is the words of, of Darren Asamoglu, who's a professor at MIT, the key is inclusive institutions. That's the word, inclusive institutions. The idea that you want to create institutions that allow as many people as possible to participate in your society and in your economy. Uh, and so one of the things I tell in, in the book is the story of where a variety of in, inclusive institutions, where they came from. And a lot of them came from England 
English history, from British history. So I actually spend a few chapters in the book delving into medieval history, which I find to be fascinating and often quite hilarious. Um, mm -hmm. And so one of the stories is that England and France actually hate each other and they actually fought a war for many, many mm -hmm. centuries. A war that started in the 11th century when William, the Duke of Normandy, invades England in 1066 and becomes king of England. And when he becomes king of England, the king of France has a problem. William is Duke of Normandy, which means he works for the king of France. But he's also king of England, which means he doesn't work for the king of France. So when the king of France is talking to William, he has a question. Am I talking to the king of England or am I talking to the Duke of Normandy? Which one are you? Well, I'm both. Which one am I talking to you right now? Depends on what you say. Mm -hmm. uh, and the king of France is like, well, I'd like you to give me back my lands because I don't want the king of England being Duke of Normandy. And William of Conqueror is like, well, at this point now you're talking to the king of England and I'm not giving you back the land. So it's not going to happen. <laughs> but there was a solution to that. But I, I read a book recently that talked about this. There was a solution. William had more than one son. And his actual plan was he was going to make his oldest son, who was Robert, Duke of Normandy, and his second oldest son, William. King of England. And then therefore now the positions are split. They go back. King of France is now head of Duke. Everything's fine. The problem was when he dies, Robert, who is Duke of Normandy, the oldest, says, I'd rather also be King of England as well. And William, King of England now is like, you know what? I'd also rather be Duke of Normandy. So they now have a conflict. Each of them, what's what the other one has. Those two brothers resolved their conflict. And they resolved it enough uh, so that William made Robert, his older brother, his heir. Um, and then Robert felt secure enough to go off and fight in the Crusades, um, where apparently he was he was quite good at military exploits. But as Duke, he was a lousy administrator. So he comes back to France and he's just not a very good administrator. And the people in France don't really like him that much because he just doesn't handle administrative things very well. Um, and then William, though, dies. Um, and before Robert could get back to England, uh, their other younger brother, Henry, seizes the crown jewels, has himself crowned king of England. Now he's king of England. And Robert's like, no, but, but I should be king of England. I, I'm, the, I'm older than you. Henry goes, I don't, I don't think so. And then Henry invades France, captures his brother, and makes himself king, Duke of Normandy as well. And that goes back to our original problem. Now we have one person in two roles, and that creates a conflict that lasts for five centuries. And out of that conflict, mm -hmm. we get common law, and we get uh, the rise of, of representative government, and we get the Magna Carta. All these things come out of this conflict. So it's a very important story. But I tell my students the story about Robert, and I said, we all understand that Robert just is not a good administrator, so that's the objection. But let's, let's be honest, and I say this in the book, let's be honest, there's another objective objection to Robert becoming King of England. And it's the it's an obvious one. If he were to become King of England, his name would have been King Robert or actually King Bob. And I just would like you to imagine the barons of England having a meeting where they say to Robert, you can't be King of England. Why not? I'm the oldest. Because then you'd be King Bob. And that just sounds stupid. You can't be King Bob. <laughs> We're not going to have a King Bob. It's not going to happen, dude. There's no King Bob. OK, that can't happen. King William, OK with that. Henry, OK. Bob, no. Everyone in Europe would make fun of us. Who exactly is the King of England? Guy named Bob. 
Bob. Bob can't be Kane. Bob can be a lot of things. He could be your plumber. Uh, he could be the Mason. Bob can have a lot of jobs. He just can't be the king of England. That can't be it. There, Bob's never the king. Um, and so I tell my <laughs> students this. Because I said, you know, because to me, you have to, when you tell these stories to students, if you tell the story in the way historians tell the story or the way economists tell a story, where you tell it very seriously and very straight and you just plow through these issues. Okay, the audience is an 18-year-old kid. They, they, many of them, I mean, for many of them, this is the first college class they're taking. Um, and if you're going to sit there and drone on for, you know, for 50 minutes or my Tuesday, Thursday class, which goes for an hour and 15 minutes, and you just tell these stories in a very serious manner, that's not going to work. The, students cannot pay attention to something that, like that very long, and they're going to be not listening to you. Mm -hmm. So what I found in teaching especially this kind of an audience is you have to make it interesting and you got to you got to pick up on the obvious jokes that that help the students say okay I now remember who William the Conqueror is and I remember why you told me that story and I know what the conflict is because you told me a joke about King Bob. Mm -hmm. And now I know what that means and I was able to pay attention to the whole story because now it sounds entertaining and it's fun and it's interesting. And if you don't do it that way, then the student is like, I, I don't know who these people are. This was a thousand years ago. Why am I even in the slightest bit supposed to care about this? Um, and so I find that as you as you teach different things in economics and history, it helps if you go through and you find that amusing anecdote or amusing way of presenting it that the student can then listen to and pay attention. And you find if you do that, the students will learn even though they don't know they're learning. Because often economics is taught that way. It's taught in a way that's not accessible. They use a lot of graphs, a lot of terms that people aren't familiar yeah. with. Yeah. And the student just walks away going, I really don't even know what you were trying to say or why right. it's important or where you're going with that. And I am constantly, when I'm teaching any class in economics, I'm thinking to myself, how do I get somebody who's not an economist to understand the point? What is the point we're trying to get across here? And you try and do that. You try to get them interested in the subject in a way that they can relate to. Because I can remember as a student, I wasn't interested. Mm -hmm. I would sit there and go, I don't know where you're going with this or why that's important. And when I started teaching and I had to perform myself, I then had to make the connection in my head. Why am I telling you this? Why is this important? I have to answer that question before I can get you to understand it, I have to understand it. And when I first started teaching, you know, back in the 90s, when I was in my 20s, I would think about that when I was writing up my lectures. What's the point? Where are we going with this? Why am I telling you this? Um, and sometimes the answer was, there isn't a point. It's just a chapter in the book. And I remember telling students on some stuff I would do, I said, I'm sorry, it's in the book. We have to do it. It's not interesting. I'm sorry. I can't do anything about mm -hmm. it. So what I would do on the board, you know, this is before we had Zoom, we were on the board. I'd write on the board at the beginning of the lecture, I would say 45 minutes left. And then as I'd lecture every five minutes, I'd go 40 minutes left. <laughs> this is all going to end for us. I said, I, and I, I, I would tell the students, I said, I want you to understand. I've taught this lecture now several times. It's not getting more interesting for me. This is not getting better. It's just getting worse. <laughs> so you only are hearing it once. I have to do this every yeah. semester. It's not getting yeah. better. It's just getting worse. I'm not, I'm not thrilled with this. I'm sorry. We can't skip it. We got to do it.
Um, and that's life. Life is doing stuff you hate. Um, so yeah, so, so you have to do stuff like that. You have to do that as an instructor to think about it is a performance. You got to think about them. And if you do that, you'll find the students will learn. Um, my finals in my class are all comprehensive. The finalist class is comprehensive. Um, they have to, they have to learn the basic lessons of the class. Mm -hmm. The average on that final is 85%. They they learn what most of them get A's and or higher. They do extremely well in that final. Um, they do extremely well in that because they they weren't feeling like I I this was really hard. I couldn't understand what you're saying. I don't know the terminology. When they get to the final, on most questions, they're like, I know what that is. I know what that is. I heard that. I remember that. I understand that. And they're being asked in this class, Do you understand monetary policy? Do you understand fiscal policy? Do you understand Magna Carta? Do you understand where these things came from? But they learned it in a way they're like, oh, that was the Star Wars story. That was the Lord of the Rings story. That was the Wizard of Oz story. That was this right. story. That, And then they're like, oh, that makes all sense to me. I'm yeah. like, yeah, it all makes perfect sense if I tell it to you in a way that you can relate to. Um, but if I don't, then this is tedious and it's horrible. And I don't know what that was about. I don't know why we did that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's the trick. It is a performance. It's all a performance. Yeah. You mentioned that you teach a lot of non-majors in the economics history course. So what pop culture, you know, hooks or stories do you find are most effective at gaining their interest when they're clearly not really that interested? (laughs) You know, the book itself started when I started writing it. It came about because I went to I went to see Marvel's Infinity Wars and there was a scene in the book, and I talk about uh, I talk about this, uh, where Thanos explains his plan. Uh, and Thanos' plan is to wipe out half of all life, and his objective is to end poverty. Um, and as I point out in the book, well, that's just stupid. I mean, that, that should have been the response. I mean, there should have, and that, and so. The story of the title of the book is The Last Hero's Lesson. And the reason why it's called that is because I imagine, I envision, I talk about this, and this is in the the third or fourth chapter of the book, that in that scene, in that movie, there is a last hero who shows up when Thanos explains before they fight. There is a last hero that shows up. And the last hero is uh, an economist. I I cast her as a woman uh, who shows up and walks into the scene with where Dr. Strange is talking to Thanos. And she says, uh, I don't have any superpower. My only power is to explain to you that you're an idiot. Everything you say. And and there's a line in the book where she says, I'm hoping there's a seventh infinity stone that makes you smart because you're not a smart person. Um, You have a lot of abilities, but smart is not one of them. Everything you said is ridiculous. That can't pass. What you said cannot pass. First of all, you don't seem to understand where poverty even comes from. And secondly, you're you're you're. Even if it worked the way you thought it did, that can't possibly solve poverty. That that, that mathematically, you're totally wrong about how this all works. Um, and so you're an idiot. Uh, this is the problem. Uh, we nobody should fight you. You're just stupid. <laughs> and so so she goes through it, and so she goes through and says, "This is where you're getting this wrong. This is how economic growth works. Um, it doesn't work the way you think it does." Uh, I'm going to explain to you how it works. And so she talks about inclusive institutions and the role these play. And she makes a point 
you know, you can see the problem you have just in the way your organization is set up. Thanos, you don't have anyone in your organization who ever questions you, whoever says, hey, mm-hmm. maybe you're not getting this right. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, I tell my students, I, I try to illustrate to my students, what what's this? Because for most of human history, societies are dominated by what Asimoglu and Robinson refer to as extractive institutions. A small subset of society extracts resources from everyone else. And they use those resources to build giant palaces and live extremely well while most people are peasants. And that's how societies are structured. In that kind of environment, there's not a lot of incentive to innovate. There's not a lot of incentive to come up with technological change. And those are the things that drive economic growth. Is technological mm-hmm. change what drives economic growth. Um, and it, we don't see economic growth until we get to two or three centuries ago. And then we start to see persistent economic growth. Every decade, we're better off than the previous decade. Why is that? Well, we start to understand in the 20th century that the key to economic growth is technological change. Uh, You need to have persistent technological change. Um, And that's the world that we live in. And I I start off the class uh, very first week, I go through and I show them all the technology that's changed just in my lifetime. Uh, and and that they find, you know, there, there's just I, I go through and I tell them, you know, the world I grew up in in the 70s yeah. and 80s and what technology we had. <laughs> um, the rotary phone sounds totally bizarre, but that's the phone that was in my house growing up is the rotary phone. Um, and the idea that long distance is not something you get to do. Yeah. Um, people don't. People wrote letters. I, I wrote letters when I was a kid. You wrote letters to people um, and it would take couple of weeks for people to reply with their letters. Um, right. And that's how you would talk to people. Um, and so that was something that happened. Uh, so we wrote letters. Uh, you know, all these things have happened just in the last 50 years or so. And I think students don't appreciate that. So you can, you can go through and you can say, I can show you the numbers. The economy's grown tremendously over the last two centuries. I can show you those numbers. And I do that. And it's in the book. I show them the numbers. But I think you have to then tell a story that says, what, what does that mean? If I'm going to tell you that income has gone up 50 times in the last 200 years, what exactly does that mean? And you want to make it real for them by saying, I want you to think about the world that somebody lived in in the 19th century or even in the early 20th century or even 50 years ago. What kind of things did they have? Um, what world were they living in? Uh, and you you point that out to them. You say, you know, and one of the lessons I, I tell students, I said, I want you to just as you walk around, um, you know, Cedar City has been around for about 150 years. The houses around our campus are about 60, 70 years old. I point out to students, these houses around the campus, which are about 1,000 square feet, these were middle-class homes 60 years ago. People who lived in those homes believe they made it. I, I, I live in 1,000 square feet. I have indoor plumbing. I have electricity. This is the greatest mm-hmm. thing I ever saw. Mm-hmm. And and I, and I tell students, if you graduate from SUU and that's all you can afford, that's all you got, you're going to sit there and say, but they have a 5,000 square foot house and they have, why don't I have that? Hey, by leave it to Beaver standards, you're doing amazingly well. Well, <laughs> I'm not going by those standards, right? I'm not living in 1955. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's the, you know, I think the students have to have some way of making it seem real to them. Yeah. Other than just looking at numbers right. on a chart. And that's what you want to do. You want to tell them where all these things came from. 
And, you know, what has your the student response been? We now get about 400 students a year going through this class. Um, and the student, the general feedback on this class has been uh, remarkably positive. The general feedback on the book has been remarkably positive. Uh, one of the things I asked the students, because we used it for the first time last semester, uh, before that, the students had a, the, my, the bookstore would print out a copy of it. And it's it's a, it's a big book. It's a history book. Um, and so they could feel how big it was. Um, but now they can't tell that it's an ebook. So you can't tell. Um, so you're just clicking on each chapter, right? And I, I, I thought I would test them on, you know, your perceptions. Um, and I so I had a question on my final. How long is the book? You read? I, I asked them first. I asked them how many of you read the book. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, a significant number of them said all of it. I read the whole thing, um, which is unusual. I don't think people generally do that. Um, and, and a lot of them said I read at least seventy to eighty percent of it. I read a big chunk of this book. Um, which, again, I think that's very good for a standard book in a class. Students don't tend to read yeah. the entire book. Um, then I asked them this, especially you know, economics, especially economics, especially <laughs> economics. Especially economics. Uh, and then I asked them this question. How long do you think the book was? Mm -hmm. And the correct answer is uh, it is 600 pages. OK, if you were to print it out, it is 600 pages. Um, only I, I would say I would say easily less than 20 percent of them knew that. Yeah. I had students guess 200 pages. Yeah. So 200 pages, right? No, no, you read a lot. You read a lot more than you thought you read. Um, but because they could just get the ebook and click on it. Mm -hmm. And the thing about it is, is the music videos, there's about 300 songs in the book. You can click on the music as you're reading it. Um, mm -hmm. So as you read along, there'll be a song, you know, and I'll link the song to the story that we're telling and you can click on it and the music video will pop up and you can listen to it as you read it. Um, and I and I and I do that every class I teach. I start off the class with a music video related to what we're doing that day. Uh, and then as I teach the class, I'll say, OK, here's let's go to another music video. Um, and the very first song in the book is Welcome to the Future by Brad Paisley. It's a country song. Mm -hmm. And in the song, Brad Paisley talks about. He talks about how much technology has changed in his lifetime and how amazing it is living in the 21st century toward versus the world that he grew up in. And I said, that's the story of the book. That's the book. Mm -hmm. The book is telling that story. And Brad Paisley completely in a in a in a four minute song, he completely captures what we're talking about. Um, and he talks about how when he was a kid, he had to go to an arcade to play Pac-Man. And now Pac-Man's on his phone. He goes, that's mm -hmm. amazing. That's amazing that we can do that. Um, he said, my father fought in World War II against the Japanese. He says, the company that produces my music is Sony. They're a Japanese company. I work with a Japanese company. You know, my, my grandfather would be amazed at that. You know, mm -hmm. we don't fight those. We're, we're, they are with us. They, you know, and I tell the story in the book of of of, of K-pop, which is of, mm -hmm. which I, I love K-pop. I think it's it's so incredibly fascinating. Um, but I tell I have a chapter in the book where I tell the story of the, to the students of of I grew up watching MASH. MASH is about South Korea in the 1950s. And mm -hmm. uh, South Korea banned MASH. They will not show that that show in their country because it is racially offensive. It shows mm -hmm. South Koreans as illiterate and poor. And, mm -hmm. and they said, that's not who we are. Um, and K-pop was initially a government initiative to alter the worldwide perception of people who live in Korea. Um, and I tell my and I use that to illustrate how government policy can change a nation's comparative advantages. Um, 
And it's a great illustration of that. And I tell my students, think about that meeting in the late 90s where somebody in South Korea said, we are going to create, we're going to produce music that everyone in the world is going to listen to. And you're like, that sounds insane. How could that possibly work? You what do you you think you're going to be the Beatles? That's ridiculous. That's not going to happen. Who's going to listen to our music? Um, and they did that. Blackpink uh, mm-hmm. did a global tour. Hundred thousand people show up to their concerts around the world, uh, and so it's just amazing. And so I, you know, I, I point that out to students. So that's the Brad Paisley's like vision of how much things have changed. And then I yeah. contrast that with a song like Inner City Blues by Marvin Gaye or a song like Eve of Destruction from Barry McGuire, where the song is saying we have these problems and they're completely intractable. We'll never solve these things. The line that Marvin Gaye says over and over and over again in Inner City Blues is everything makes me want to holler. Everything just makes me want to scream. I, none of these things can be solved. And Eva Destruction is the same song. Nothing can be solved. And I point out to them, it's been 50 years since then. The world is immensely better than the world they were looking at. That really kind of segues well into what is our our final question. So we do a little segment called You're Wrong. It is your chance to take two to three minutes and just set the record straight about some misconception in your field or discipline. I think one of the issues, and this is this is a big part of the book, is that uh, people have a habit of thinking the market can solve all problems and that there is no role for government. And uh, mm-hmm. and so I spent time in cl- one of the things I talk about in the class is the role government plays in doing things. Um, And it's not just macroeconomic policy where government does fiscal policy, monetary policy. And I do talk about that in the book extensively about how that works, where that came from, how we learn how to do that. Uh, But also just the fact that government has to do things to make the market system work efficiently. Uh, And I point out to students what bad government looks like. And I use Star Wars as an example um, (laughs) because Uh, In Star Wars, you know, the first trilogy, they overthrow the emperor um, and they're triumphant and they're very excited about this. Um, And then they do the prequels and then they come back, you know, a few years ago with the continuation of story 30 years ago. And yet and once again, they're back in a rebellion against the government. And I said, okay, we have to ask ourselves a simple question. What exactly happened? Did you not form a government that would work? And if you look at the Star Wars universe, it they keep coming back to this theme and they don't explore this enough. I think Uh, a lot of people in the star Wars universe are poor and there's a very high crime rate. Mm -hmm. Um, The whole point of job of the Hutt is he's a gangster who Mm -hmm. runs a planet. You would think a galactic government would handle that at some point. (laughs) I don't think that's ideal. I think we should figure that one out. Um, (laughs) Being good at a, at a lightsaber is not exactly good at running a government. Government Mm -hmm. is C-SPAN. That's what government is. It's boring. Um, And so I tell students that government has a variety of things it has to do. And I list them in the book as, and I use Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., one of my favorite Marvel shows, um, and I use it as, as a way of explaining it. There are, there are various shields that government participates in. And, and one of the things government has to do is it has to figure out, um, it has to not only figure out institutions, it has to figure out um, how to deal with externalities, like how do you deal with pollution? How do you deal with, um, how do you deal with education? Has to deal with how to, how to figure out crime issues. 
Uh, those are issues. Uh, how to protect people from bullies. How do you deal with the fact that rich people can take advantage of poor people? How do you deal with discrimination? Um, these are all things that government has. Markets can't solve these problems. That's I said government has to do things. It has to solve problems. Somebody has to pick up the snow on the streets. Somebody has to make sure the garbage gets picked up. Um, you can't count on markets to solve all these problems for you. Government plays a role. So there's a there's a misconception, I think, in economics that if you have a free market, that somehow that will make every and I say this in the book that if we have a free market, everybody gets a unicorn. Um, that's not how it works. Government plays a role in the system. Uh, government has to do things to resolve issues that markets by themselves can't resolve. Um, and I go through and I explain that as we go through the book, that markets do a lot of things, but even the, the role of technology and how technology drives economic growth, a substantial amount of technological change gets created at universities. And so people spend a lot of time creating better vaccines and working on solving global warming and coming up with better, um, all sorts of better battery technology or new advances in chemistry or physics or even economics or whatever. And they do this all, why? Because they want to feel like they're the smartest kid in class. It's not because they want to get more. Einstein did not do the theory of relativity because he was hoping to make money off of this. He wanted people to think he was smart. And, and, and the whole idea of an inclusive society is to create a space where that gets to happen. Mm -hmm. I, I want you to do that. I created a space where you could do that. And when you do that, I'm not going to I'm not going to I'm not going to persecute you. I'm not going to arrest you. I'm not going to I'm not going to do bad things to you. I'm going to let you do these things. And mm -hmm. and that works amazingly well. But you can't rely on the market to do that. Uh, markets alone are not going to create all these things. Um, people have to have an incentive to explore these things just for the sake of exploring them. Right. And there's a section in your text where I think you compare and contrast Adam Smith to Yoda, kind of, in this regard as well, yes. that I, I am coming back to. So <laughs> this is something you share with your students as well. Yes, I think there's a very strong tendency in uh, economics, and I think this is true in academia in general. We tend to revere people in the past. And one of the things I try to tell students, because I've done so much research and I know the research process, I want to humanize who these people are. Adam Smith is a guy writing down some ideas. Uh, he lives with his mother um, and he gets some things wrong. I, I point out students, he gets some things obviously wrong. One of, the, one of the famous quotes from Adam Smith is that it's not from the butcher or the baker or the brewer that we get our dinner, but it's from um, uh, that we that it's not from their, their benevolence that we get our dinner. It's because of their own self-interest. And mm -hmm. I tell my students, uh, and this is a, there was a wonderful book written by a woman named Katrine Marcel, who says, who titled the book is who who where did who who bake who cooked Adam Smith's dinner? It was his mother. Uh, Adam Smith wrote this book, and he forgot that his dinner actually didn't come from a baker or brewer. It came from his mother, and his mother did it out of her own benevolence. That's why she did it. He left that story out, and because he leaves the story out. Um, he doesn't talk about women in the wealth of nations and economists leave women out of the story. And I said, you don't want to look at Adam Smith as if he's Yoda. He's not somebody we should hang in on every word he says. There are things that he says that are really insightful and they're interesting and they're useful. And we should note that. But then we should also note there's some things he says. Let's face it. He's writing in the 18th century and the guy lives with his mother. And there are some things he says that I think if you were to talk to Adam Smith today, I think he would, judging by the way he wrote, he'd be honest enough to say, okay, that one didn't make a lot of sense. I, I missed on that <laughs> one. Um, and I think I think we tend to, to, to put these people on pedestals. 
mm-hmm. um, and not treat them as people and say, you want to think about this as a person. He's trying to think about the world he's living in. You got it. You, I tell students, you got to think about him. He's writing in the 1770s. What is the world he's looking at? He's not living in the 21st century. So he doesn't know the things that you're experiencing. Um, he's looking at the world he lives in. And one of the big things Adam Smith was primarily focusing on was not the evils of government. He was talking about the evils of monopoly power. That was a big part of the British economy in the 18th century was monopoly power. Why monopoly? Now, governments were creating the monopolies. That's why he talked about government. But it's the monopolies that he was mad about. Um, And you have to understand that. Why did he think monopolies were a bad idea? Um, And I think if you, you treat him as a person, you understand the world he's living in, it makes it so that you can relate to and understand him. But if you treat him like he's Yoda and that everything he says is brilliant by itself, and I think people do that. They'll they'll quote somebody in the past and their Mm -hmm. argument effectively is, this person said it, it must be right. It's like Mm -hmm. arguments from authority are not right by themselves. You have to actually have evidence. Um, Why do you think he's right? And where's the evidence that says that that's a good idea or a bad idea? What's the extent of that idea? You know, related to that is the story. He says the invisible hand in the book and people ran with that idea. Adam Smith said that exactly once Mm -hmm. in the entire book. So if you were to do an interview with Adam Smith in 1777 on a talk show and say Mm -hmm. and somebody like we're doing this podcast, you have Adam Mm -hmm. Smith on the podcast. Adam, tell us about the invisible hand. We noticed that in your book. I think he'd be like, uh, "What? What? What? Are, why are hands invisible?" I'm, I'm missing that. It was in your book, really? Yeah, on like page four fifty. Yeah, I didn't memorize it. I, you know, I, I wrote it over seven years. I, you know, I said a lot of things. I don't, you know, I don't really know what I wrote. You know, who can remember what I wrote? And I point that out, students. The invisible hand is only a central idea to Adam Smith if you if you define central as it did occur in the center of the book. Uh, but other than that, he never says it again. I tell the students, I say inclusive institutions in this book over and over and over again. It's the central idea of the book. That's why I say it over and over again. Invisible hand is not his central idea. He said it once. Can't be a central idea. If he thought it was central, he would have said it again and again. But he didn't because it's not his key point. Um, other writers picked up on that and thought that was his key point, but it, it was, they were not him. Uh, his key point was he was talking about monopoly power and he's talking about how to make, and that maybe England should rely, should trust, be more trustworthy of how markets work. Yeah, that's fascinating because I'm going back to like AP world history and the one line with Adam Smith and his invisible hand. Mm-hmm. That was like yes. the, the topic sentence, you know? So. Yeah, and he, he said it exactly once as a throwaway. It was a throwaway in the book. He does say it one other time in his first book. He said it one time in that book, too. So he said it twice. But if you write if you write 2,000 pages of stuff and you say it yeah. twice, I'm pretty sure that's not your key point. You right. know, and, and it's not. It wasn't his key point. Um, Adam Smith thought markets could do things. He didn't think they could do everything. He thought they could do things. But he's living in a world where the British government is establishing monopolies for virtually every single industry. And there are no free markets anywhere. And he's saying, you know, and I think his point was, you know, maybe you don't have to do it to that level. Maybe you could have some markets. And it's it's a very modest proposal. I'm I'm just maybe you ought to think about this. Maybe this isn't quite the best way to do things. Um, Instead, it ends up being this book that people look back on and they're like, 
And you see this when people talk about economics. It's I don't want government involved in anything. I want this to be an absolute free market. And nobody advocated that. Nobody thought that would work. And there's lots of reasons why they wouldn't think that would work out. They had all sorts of reasons, things that government should, government should provide education. Government should do progressive taxes. That's all Adam Smith. It's all in there. Um, he thought all those things. And he understood there's a limit to what I'm saying because I'm not an idiot. I, I am not saying that you can just have the government not do anything, that would be ridiculous. Mm -hmm. um, and so he understood that. He understood that. And I tell students this over and over again. The answer in economics is often, well, it depends on how you look at it. Uh, is free trade a good idea? Sometimes it is. Sometimes you want to have free trade. Sometimes you want another country. They're better at producing things than you. Maybe you should let them do that. Mm -hmm. But sometimes what you're doing, you'd be better off producing a different good in the long run, you'd be better off changing your, and economists use this word, comparative advantage, changing your comparative advantage. And I tell my students in the book, what do we mean by comparative advantage? Uh, it means you should do what you do best. And mm -hmm. I tell students, you know, you think that if, if we said it that way, everyone would understand the idea. Why don't you do what you do best? Isn't that kind of obvious? Yeah, it's actually all of this is obvious. All of <laughs> economics is kind of obvious, but we don't say it in an obvious way because you wouldn't think we're smart if we said it in the obvious way. So therefore, we use words like comparative advantage. Well, that sounds really, really complicated. It is. It's totally complicated. Uh, do what you do best. That's what I'm saying. So, yeah, that's yeah. A lot of economics is like that. It's 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 uh, fiscal policy, monetary policy, trade policy. All these things can be explained with very simple language. And I use that in the book to say, it's all very simple. It's not that complicated. You can all understand what they're trying to do. Um, it's just that when economists get a hold of it, they want you to think, I'm really, really smart. Um, and I want you to think I'm smart. So I'm gonna use big words that you don't understand to make it sound like I'm some kind of wizard. Um, but in reality, all I'm telling you is something fairly simple, fairly easy to get. Uh, once you put it in language that everyone understands, you're like, oh, that's kind of obvious, isn't it? Yeah, it's all kind of obvious. This is not complicated stuff. And on that, that honestly sums it up a bit, doesn't it? Yeah, that <laughs> yeah, was it a does. great conversation of the entire conversation and of and your, your book. Yeah, <laughs> and of your course in general of summarizing yeah. Yeah, economics in a way that, that non-majors can understand. And that's exactly yeah. what this is all about. It's, yeah, yeah. you got to communicate to people who didn't take a bunch of, and are not going to, they're not going to. I mean, right. they have their own majors. Yeah. Um, I do get some people who transfer into economics after this class. I think sure. they got a little fooled because it's not going to be like this. <laughs> the other instructors aren't going to tell you about Yoda. Um, but uh, but for the most part, you know, they won't because they're, they're, they're not, they, they already have their own majors and they're already, they're already yeah. committed to something else. Um, and it's just a chance to say, I want you to understand the world that you're living in and how we got here and appreciate the world that you're living in and understand that despite what you're hearing on the news, um, it's not as bad as it sounds. Right. And yes, there are tragedies. And I want you to know that there are tragedies. There are bad things that happen and we want to work on fixing them. But we also want to have some perspective on these things that if you go through your whole life thinking that we're doomed constantly, um, that's probably not the best way to live your life. You're not doomed. Um, um, and so uh, you want to think about that. In general, the story is it's a positive story. You should think it's a positive story and it, and it gets better as it goes along. So that's the big lesson I'm trying to convey. Yeah. It gets better as it goes along. It gets better <laughs> as it goes along. <laughs>
Well, someone who wanted and actually really wanted to understand economics because I understand it feeds into every aspect of my life and was disappointed not to understand it. I, I really appreciate your title and the time you've spoken. You've taken to speak with us today. Yeah, and thank you so much for coming on. And I'm glad um, you did this. This is this is fun. This was a lot of fun. Yeah, we're glad you enjoyed it. And honestly, I mean, season three, season four, we'd love to have you on again because I feel like we just scratched the we surface. Did. I'd love to do that. There are many, many other stories to tell <laughs> yeah. uh, from the Star Wars universe, the Marvel universe, music videos, Star Trek, uh, the Wizard of Oz. We didn't touch on the Lord of the Rings. We totally Lord missed the, the Lord of the Rings. Lord of the Rings. No the Lord of the Rings is a comedy. I tell the students that it's a comedy. You don't know that it, there's so many <laughs> jokes in Lord of the Rings. The whole thing is a comedy. Uh, and it's a fantastic story about uh, industrialization and what it means and what it doesn't mean. Um, it's it's such a fascinating story, but it's it's so hilarious. There are so many comedy bits that come out of the Lord of the Rings. Um, so we didn't touch on that at all. So there's, yeah, there's much more That's to this than teaser. we can talk about. Yeah, a little teaser yeah. for next time you're on. <laughs> good. We should do that. That would be good. Thank you again, David, for joining us on today's episode. Professors today are all really struggling with keeping the attention of their students and making their subjects more relatable. And in being forced to teach a traditionally boring subject, economic history, to a group of non-econ majors, you have definitely developed a very creative and effective approach, more of a performance. Um, the topic, this topic of making a course more relatable to students is very common right now, but how do you do that? How do you approach that? I hope that our listeners are able to gain some ideas and inspiration from you and how you approach economics. Full disclosure, I never read The Wealth of Nations, but I do distinctly remember learning about the invisible hand. And that hand, bony and cold and shrouded, is how I pictured economics as a whole, like something out of a Dickens novel. With this title, students and readers get the opportunity to have economics unmasked and unveiled. The connections that it makes allows them to understand these concepts and policies and theories that touch every facet of their lives. With this title, we learn that continuous technological progression, the continued inclusion of different voices at all of the tables, the elimination of yes-men, is building a world that is more prosperous, more connected. So it's no longer a ghost of Christmas future haunting us. It's pointing us to a world of new opportunities. Thanks for tuning in to Can I Get a Retake, a podcast by Great River Learning. If you liked the episode, show your support by subscribing, sharing, and leaving a review on your favorite podcast platform. For detailed show notes and transcripts, visit greatriverlearning.com. Can I Get a Retake is brought to you by hosts Michaela Alby and Michelle Manneman, with editing by Maggie Christensen. Artwork for the podcast is crafted by myself, and our intro music is courtesy of Kama Media. We'll be back soon with another captivating chat with a top GRL innovator.